And we saw last week that Elijah in chapter 18 of 1 Kings was in this incredible powerful moment on Mount Carmel. He had been used by God to call down fire and eradicate 450 of the prophets of Baal. He had confronted the king about his evil and he had done a great work. And then in chapter 18 we find that same man, or chapter 19 we find that same man running scared. It says in chapter 19 verse 1, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make you like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. See, one minute he's calling down fire and one minute he's scared. God knows you and I are human. And that's why the Bible is such a remarkable and amazing account because it's everything. It's the power encounters on Carmel. It's the running away when he's afraid. See, it wasn't just what happened to Elijah that made him run. It wasn't just the threat and the fearful threat of Jezebel that she wants to kill him. It's also what didn't happen. He expected that Carmel was going to be the breakthrough moment, the transition moment, the moment when the wicked king and Jezebel were going to turn their hearts and repent and come back to God. He believed that it was going to be the turning point for a whole nation. And then suddenly he's faced with the fact that actually nothing's really changed. Ahab's still king, Jezebel's still evil, and now I'm going to die too. See, it's not just what happens to us, it's also what doesn't happen to us that leaves us in emotional pain. So Elijah then goes on, he says, uh, in verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it and prayed that he might die. He is so in despair, he feels suicidal. I've had enough, Lord. Take, he said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He then lay down under the bush and fell asleep. See, it's not just what happens to us that leaves us in the dark place of despair. It's also what we feel hasn't happened to us and for us. It's the sense of loss. This didn't happen the way I wanted it to happen and he feels despair and darkness. And God, though, loves to break in in dramatic ways. God loves to break in in ways that empower us and encourage us and energise us and give us strength so that we can carry on the journey with him. And in this occasion, it says, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over a hot, hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Then in verse 7 it says, The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, Get up, eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the Mount of God. Some commentators say that's Mount Sinai. 
That's another peak of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. That's where Moses encounters the burning bush. That's where Moses got the Ten Commandments. That was a place of spiritual significance. He's journeying there because he's on his way to meet God, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. See, God loves to break in with sudden encounters. And it's interesting, we noted last week that God broke in and gave him sleep and God broke in and gave him food. That God knows we're human and that God understands a holistic view of us. That God doesn't just come in and say, these are the facts, those are just feelings, Elijah. He comes in and says, what you really need right now is a good rest, a good sleep and a good meal. Then it says he got up in strength and went on the journey. And it's interesting that the sleep and the food got him out of deep, dark, suicidal despair and depression. It got him out of the pit because we know later on he never mentions again that he wants his life taken away. It was like the darkness around him was really, I'm exhausted, I'm overwhelmed, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. God's so wise and so good. He met Elijah with what he needed so that he could keep going on the journey towards an encounter. But God loves process too. And it says in verse 7, he travelled for 40 days, or verse 8, he travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. God loves process too. It's interesting, God doesn't answer Elijah's questions in this section. And actually, even when he has the encounter with God in the silence, God is pretty quiet about a lot of the things that Elijah is going to be speaking about. God wants to take Elijah on a journey in process because God loves relationship. It's actually in process where we get to know God. It's in process that we get to know God personally. It's in process that we get to know God relationally. It's in process that we get to trust God. (coughs) Elijah went 40 days and 40 nights on a journey in process. (coughs) And God, notice, is not the architect of, or the designer, or the author of Elijah's pain. God is not a cruel joke God. God wants to encounter Elijah, he wants to meet with Elijah, he wants to deepen his trust, but God is not the author of his emotional suffering and his pain. It's actually Jezebel who breathed out threats that I'm going to kill you. It's Jezebel's threats that got him running and her threats and what she said touched a broken spot in Elijah. That actually Elijah had this area of his heart when, where he was fearing what people could do more than trusting God. And it The source was Jezebel and it touched him deeply in a wounded area, in a part of his life. And God knows that process is going to transform Elijah and it's going to freshly commission Elijah. God knows there's 40 days and 40 nights that he's going to be left on his own with his thoughts and with his pain and with his disappointment about what did not happen. 
God is not in a rush to get Elijah out of a emotional, painful state. God knows that whilst not the source of the suffering, God knows that this pain has a redemptive goal, that pain can do something through process. So often why God doesn't snap his fingers and just zap us out of pain is so often why God doesn't do magic and just, boom, we're out of the pain, out of the emotional darkness immediately. He doesn't sprinkle fairy dust on us and we come in in a kind of emotional pain and distress about what's happened or about what's not happened and sometimes we're expecting God to do magic, sprinkle fairy dust or zap us out of pain. But God understands that pain, emotional pain, has a work to do first. I want to be honest, we're dealing here, we're, we're dealing here about emotional pain and turmoil. I'm not, this, the subject is not about physical sickness. We can talk about physical sickness on, in another time. And God can redeem physical sickness, he can heal physical sickness, and he doesn't send sickness upon us to teach us a lesson. Okay? He's not a cruel joke God. As we're passing through life, stuff happens to us. We're impacted by things. And pain has a job to do. It says in Hebrews 5 that Jesus learnt trusting obedience through what he suffered. I think the Son of God, in absolute perfection, sinless perfection, came to understand his reality, that he is the God-man, through some of the things and some of the pain that he suffered. Pain has a job to do. Pain has a work to do. Pain has a redemptive thing that's at work in us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I don't want you to be unaware of what we suffered in the province of Asia. He goes on to say, we despaired even of our very lives. Some people say that the suffering was so great in Asia for Paul that they wished that they could die. It was so hard. We despaired even of very life. And then he goes on to say, but this happened. So that... We would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Paul is saying there, God is not the source. Actually, wickedness of men was the source. But he says, through that redemptive capacity of God to redeem pain, he caused Paul to understand something he didn't understand before, that he doesn't need to trust in himself, but in the God who gives grace that even can raise the dead out of emotional despair and darkness. So Elijah has this incredible, hopeless sense of disappointment that he's going through and God gives him enough strength to carry on the journey but doesn't zap him out of the pain but leaves him in this turmoil for 40 days and 40 nights just with his own thoughts and considerations. 40 days walking, 40 nights sleeping. Just himself, just his thoughts, 
just the threat of Jezebel still ringing in his ears, just the disappointment that Ahab and Jezebel haven't been overthrown by God yet, just his own disappointment that I've been so zealous for you, God, and I've not seen what you've promised. Because suffering had a work to do. Pain had a work to do. This happened, Elijah, so that you wouldn't depend on yourself, but on God who raises the dead. The trouble is, as Hebrews 12 says, no discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful. No discipline is pleasant. No emotional turmoil and suffering is pleasant, but painful. And that's the truth. When we're suffering, whether we're, I don't know, whether we are feeling sick and our emotions are in despair and we feel deep darkness over us and hopelessness, whether it's delay, I thought by now, God, whether it's the unplanned pace, I thought we were moving faster than we are, God, and you seem to be working very slow. (laughs) Whether it's the sense of, I thought that was going to be the moment of breakthrough, transition and movement and it isn't and you feel like nothing's changed. Emotional pain is not pleasant. We want emotional pain to be over. We want it to be over as quick as it can be. We say, help me now. I'm hurting. Take away this pain. And sometimes we get disappointed because sometimes as charismatic believers, the only answer we seem to have is come forward and be prayed for. Yeah? And I'm not denying that that's powerful and I've had at least a number of occasions of significant breakthrough in those moments. At least six times God has come to me sovereignly and broken in. It was a bit like Elijah in a sense. It gave me the capacity and the strength for the next phase of the journey. But it didn't solve everything. There was still a process to grab hold of what God had done in the sudden moment. And so, yeah, we want to pray and believe for the sudden encounters. But we need a category as well that sometimes it's going to be 40 days, it's going to be 40 nights, and it's going to be nothing from God. Not a word of comfort, nothing. He's silent. And we don't like that. And we want the pain to be over and we want quick fixes and we want easy solutions and we want breakthrough now. Because it's painful when we're gripped by debilitating anxiety. It's painful when we're gripped with a sense of uncertainty about the future. It's painful when we don't know what's going to happen. It's painful when we're disappointed, discouraged and disillusioned. We want God to zap us. We want God to sprinkle fairy dust. We want him to do magic. We want someone to do magic. And sometimes we can find ourselves going from meeting to meeting to conference to conference looking for the man or woman of power of the hour who's going to zap us with something is just going to get us out. We're longing, just someone get me out. The pain has a work to do. There's a process that God's doing. Pain is establishing something. Don't want you to be unaware of what I suffered in the province of Asia, Paul says. We despaired even of our very lives. But this happened so that we would not depend on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead.
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness. For who? For who? For those who have been trained by it. And so we want to say, help me, get me out of pain. Get me out quickly. This is really important for us as a church because we are wonderfully gifted with the gift of pastoral love. Seriously. Seriously. High levels of pastoral loving capacities in this church. Once had a meeting, gathered a whole bunch of pastoral people. I thought there's 20 people in the room and they're all incredibly gifted, both spiritually and professionally. Amazing. We're an amazing church for pastoral care. And sometimes we can be those who hear the pain of another and the pain of help me, I'm hurting, take away the pain. And we can feel, to use the language of Danny Silk, we've got a superpower of love. You've never met anybody like me before. I've got this superpower. I'm going to get you out of that addiction. I'm going to get you out of that pain because I love like no one else can love. And I'm going to be so committed to you and faithful to you that you're going to get out because no one else has been able to, but you've never met anybody like me before. (laughs) Until we realise we don't have a superpower of love. And actually people will do what they've chosen to do and what they're ready to face. And people will do what they want to do in the end and whether they're willing to go on a journey of allowing pain to do its work. Danny Silk on one of his talks says that's the recipe for burnout. He says he was a social worker and he was looking after young people and there were kids who were struggling from broken families, broken homes and him and his wife Shuri said we're going to love these kids through to freedom. And he said he suffered from some depression and some burnout because he thought he was going to love so well. And so because we see people in pain, we want to give and we want to receive sympathy because we we pick it up. We pick up the pain and the distress and the emotional suffering. And we want to try and make things better for people as quickly as we can. And so we... oh. Oh dear, so bad. And it's good to express empathy, but sometimes we're just trying to get people out of pain with our words. Trouble is, lots of words rarely make things better. Have you ever felt that? You, you look, you're in pain, you're in agony, and you want sympathy, so you unload it all, and then you go away and think, I've still got it. I've still got it, but now I've spoken about it in a negative way. I've got it, but it seems to have grown bigger. Sometimes when we've got pain, or we hear another person's pain, we say, at least Elijah, you've got Carmel as a story. At least you had the moment on the mountain with the 400 prophets, and at least you saw the fire come, and at least you got to see the rain. I'm disappointed, and I've seen nothing. (laughs) We try to push someone's pain away by saying, at least, at least. You know, someone might say, I'm really struggling in my marriage. At least you're married. (laughs) (laughs) Or we try and deny and diminish pain. We try to say, oh, it's not really that bad. And we bury it. We bury it, diminish it, don't face it. We just get really, really, really busy. 
That busyness can be a form of numbing. We just work, 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 so that we don't have to face how tired and scared and overwhelmed and disappointed we are, because we think, if I stop for a minute, the truth of my life is going to catch me up. And I don't want to have to face how scared I am. If you noticed, the first two days of holidays are really difficult. That's the truth of our lives. That's the truth. It pops up and we're overwhelmed by exhaustion, anxiety, fear, disappointment, worry. That's the truth. It just only pops up when we're on holiday. Or we have no capacity again for the pain of others and we say, just snap out of it. Put yourself together. See, what Elijah really needed was 40 days and 40 nights with just his thoughts. He just needed time to feel what he was really feeling. To really feel it. To really come face to face with his pain. And so God is silent. Just says, So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Not a prophetic word, no reassurance, no comfort, nothing. Not a word from God. Nothing to distract him. It wasn't walking on the way to the mountain, mini Carmel opportunity, little skirmish with some prophets of Baal, little victory here, keep me going. Little encounter with an angel, more food, keeping going. Nothing. Not a word. We can feel in those moments where God is absolutely silent and saying nothing and not saying one thing. We can think, God, have you stopped loving me? Or we can think, have I done something wrong? Have I earned your disapproval or your displeasure? No, pain is doing its job. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. God disciplines those he loves. That's who he loves. If you've got no discipline from God, you have to say, I need to come to Jesus to make sure I'm a son or daughter, because he disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he calls his children. It's just the time he needs to face how disappointed, deflated and discouraged he really feels. He needs an opportunity to feel the feelings but not get stuck there. It's the other thing that can happen to us. We can just get stuck in a cycle of pain. Real, genuine trauma. Something happened to us and we never got out of it. We never let pain do its work. We never really felt what we were feeling. We numbed it. We buried it. We wouldn't face it. We didn't want to look at it. We got busy, distracted. Because we never wanted to have to have a look at how overwhelmed and scared we really are. A lady I'd heard a talk about from 
last week, 93 years old, went to Auschwitz when, in the concentration camp when she was 16 years old. She arrived at the gates of the concentration camp, the extermination camp, and she said the first person she saw were, there was the angel of death, the SS officer who ran the camp, nicknamed him that. And he said to her mum, you go right. And she went into the right-hand queue with her mum. And he said, no, you go left. And so she went left. And then he said to a 16-year-old girl, your mum's just taking a shower. And her mum was executed. And she said, you're not free to choose a life free of hurt, but you are free to choose what you do with pain. See, no one can guarantee you a life where you'll never be hurt, where you won't be touched by wickedness, injustice, unfairness and disappointment. And this woman, 93 years old, has just written a book at 91. Brilliant mind talking about how to overcome pain, pain I've no idea about. She said, you can't control not being victimised, but you can control not having an identity as a victim. She said, for her to forgive, she first had to face the rage of what was stolen but not stay there. She had to face the reality. Not just what happened, but what didn't happen. That she never had her mum. Their other family members didn't make it out and didn't survive. So that's why as pastoral people, when we try to rescue one another quickly out of pain, we actually could perpetuate a dear friend going around the mountain for the rest of their life. Help me. I don't want to feel this. Take away the pain. Take away the pain. Take away the pain. I don't want to face this. I'm hurting. Take away the pain. Somebody help me. God, zap me. God, do magic. God, God, God. I've come forward 20 times. I went to that conference. I went to that meeting. I went to that person and nothing's happening. You are silent. And some people shipwreck their faith because they... They don't hold on to what Paul says, fight the good faith according to the promises, according to the prophecies made about you, because some people have shipwrecked their faith. Because they didn't fight with the sword of the Spirit saying, you said it, you meant it, that settles it. You said it, you meant it, that settles it. Pain is doing a work in me. Pain is doing a work in me, and I don't know... I could be, I'm so much closer to a tipping point than I was. And so I do believe that there's process with tipping points. There's process with tipping points, revelation points, moments where we engage and know a deeper revelation of freedom. See, there's an encounter with Jesus that can only happen when we literally come to the utter end of ourselves. And so sometimes people, 
And I've been around a few mountains a few times thinking, I've seen that view before, I've seen that view before, we're going around again. (laughs) Yeah? I've had conversations and thoughts and prayers that I've repeated and thinking, oh God, you never ever answer them. Because there's an encounter with Jesus that only happens when we come to the utter end of ourselves. When we really, truly come to a place where we realise that God really is my only absolute option. And I don't think it has to come from God stripping away everything. I think it can come through moments like Tim's talk on thankfulness where we just realise, you know what God, every good thing I have has come from you and I'm so grateful, I'm so thankful, I'm grateful Everything I have has come from you. You provide. It's those moments when we say, I'm no longer competent to run my own life. I can't do it. Those moments where we say, God, this is too heavy. I've been carrying this around for too long. You take it. I can't carry it again. I'm giving this to you. There's a journey where we say, I'm ready to change. That's it. Ready to change. I'm not not doing this anymore. Told you my story multiple times of debilitating fear linked to OCD, the terrifying fear that I could do something that could cause a fire or theft or a flood, that if I didn't check everything enough, then maybe I could make a mistake that could lead to something awful. Debilitating fear of saying the wrong thing, of getting things wrong. You know, sometimes I would be happily go round that mountain again and again and again. Do you know why? Because I like digressing for the false peace I got. I like the sense of being in control. I like the anxiety and my mechanisms to cope. I liked it. And every now and then when it would become crushing and awful, I'd cry out to God, please break in. And he'd give revelations, he'd give thoughts, and sometimes he would be silent. And there comes a moment when you have to say, I don't want to carry that anymore. I can't live with that anymore. I've got to have a moment that the Bible calls repentance. And repentance isn't coming to a meeting and crying. Repentance isn't confession and just telling somebody. Repentance is, I'm changing my mind about that. That stops from this moment on. I'm repenting. And there's an encounter we go on. There's a journey we go on towards the cave. There's a place we come to, which we'll see next week, where God speaks. God encounters. We hear God speak tender words like, Elijah. What are you doing here? The tender words of a father after 40 days and 40 nights without a word. The tenderness of God. Elijah, how did you get here? There's a journey towards an encounter where we say, what I really need is I need a moment in the cave with Jesus. I need an encounter with Jesus. And we get to that cave, and we get there sometimes, you know what, through counselling and talking to a person. We get there sometimes through booking a sozo and, and reconnecting to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God Jesus. We get there 
sometimes through an encounter where we get prayed for, but ultimately we're on a journey to the cave where we encounter Jesus, where we, we encounter him in the place of absolute silence where there's no words and there's no desire to control or tell God what to do. We're in utter abandoned surrender. We just listen to him and what he's got to say. It's a journey to God where we saying, I'm not looking to the left, to the right, to any other solution. My only option is Jesus. My only option. My only option is Jesus. I'm not going to look for independent, quick fixes, temporary solutions. I will not numb pain through anything. Through busyness, through alcohol, through anything. I'm going to face my pain. I'm going to invite Jesus in to redeem it and heal it. I'm not going to have conversations so I just get my ego temporary boosted so I can be inflated again. I'm going after Jesus. I'm not looking for sympathetic words. I'm going for the real comfort that's an encounter with God. And yeah, we get there with community and people and brothers and sisters and one another, but ultimately, we're going to Jesus. The the cave is where we discover that God is in charge. It's in the cave where we, we discover that seeing who God is removes the anxiety. Let me just say one thing to close. Because you could be saying, actually, right now, I don't have any pain. So what's my motivation then? Well, there's two ways that we can be motivated. We can be motivated by pain, and we can be motivated by vision. And sometimes when we're just motivated by pain, we'll go on the journey just to get our pain fixed. But when we're motivated by vision... It's a motivation that sticks with us through the times of great encounter and breakthrough and no need. And when we're motivated by vision, it gets us through pain too. See, you can be motivated to do fitness and go on a diet and go to the gym through pain or through vision. It can be the pain of realising those trousers don't fit anymore. (laughs) That's pain. It's going to get you somewhere. It's probably going to get you to the gym. It's probably going to get you looking at your food. It's going to get you looking at your lifestyle. But also you could have vision. I want to run a race. I want to do something. I want to achieve a particular achievement in, I don't know, some sport. That's a vision thing. And that's going to keep you going through the pain. Ultimately, we want vision to be our greatest motivator. And I think deep down in this whole text is vision is what motivates Elijah. He's gone through a dark moment of despair. He's gone through the pain, but it's actually a vision for zeal for God and the exaltation of God that keeps Elijah going. He goes on the 40-day journey, I think, because ultimately he wants an encounter with God because he wants to know what to do next. But it's vision as well. He wants God's name to be exalted. He wants God to be lifted up. He wants the promises of God to be made real and manifest in Israel.